We are in a series called Summer in the Minors, which is 12 overview sermons over each one of the 12 minor prophets. So there's one sermon per minor prophet that we're doing this summer. We're a little over halfway now through this series. Um, These minor prophets are minor not because they're not important, but because of the size of the books. And hopefully you already know that as I've talked, I think I've said that every week so far. Um, Why study the minor prophets? Well, if we truly believe what Paul tells Timothy in his second letter to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness, then we should come to the minor prophets with great anticipation that God can and will teach us or reprove us or correct us and certainly train us for righteousness through these books. So today we are in Zephaniah, and we're going to start off in chapter 3, reading verses 14 through 17. So go ahead and turn to that section of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as I've said in the past few sermons, keep Zephaniah open, because after we read this passage to get us started, we'll then go back and we'll walk through the book and try to, by God's grace, ascertain what it is he wants to teach us through this book. So turn to Zephaniah, if you would, chapter 3, verse 14. Please stand, if you would, before I read the word. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. The word of the Lord says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't even think we can begin today to scratch the surface of the glory of these words in particular much less the whole book of Zephaniah. So we are in desperate need of your grace this morning to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us, Lord, however you see fit through your word. So, Father, we pray that you give us ears to hear. Give me a mouth to speak as we continue this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you guys in here may enjoy going and seeing an occasional movie um, or something at the theater. And if you've noticed, like I have, Hollywood is not very creative. I mean, despite the fact that they have all these writers and all these, uh, these cinematographers who can do some pretty amazing special effects, they're not, they're not very creative in the sense that once someone does a certain movie that's successful, what happens? There ends up being like four or five copycat movies that are just like that one. And so in the process, there ends up being developed all new genres of movies in Hollywood. Uh, for example... The Doomsday or Disaster movie, right? That's kind of become a genre in the last decade. The Doomsday or, or Disaster movie, whether it be an asteroid striking the Earth or whether it be that dreaded global warming that's going to destroy the Earth, whatever it is, these disaster movies have become popular. And part of the reason they're popular is because of all the CGI effects where you can actually take the, the Statue of Liberty and make it disintegrate on screen and it looks so amazing and people watch this and, and they're very popular movies, these disaster, these doomsday movies. Now why are they so popular? Well, 
It may be because there's a common fear, perhaps in all humans, that we fear the end of our planet. We fear the destruction of our world. But maybe that common fear is driven by something else, driven by a deep knowledge in our hearts that the world is not right. This world is not functioning the way it should function. Things aren't happening the way our hearts tell us they should happen. There's violence. There's death. Uh, Maybe it's a deep knowledge in our heart that, and a common fear that we know this world deserves to be wiped out of God's creation, deserves to be destroyed. Maybe that's what it is. But, But something, that common fear, that common knowledge deep within our hearts, whatever it is, these disaster movies are popular. And Zephaniah here... The beginning of Zephaniah could have been a Hollywood movie. Zephaniah begins with a short genealogy about himself. And what we learn from that short genealogy in Zephaniah 1.1 is that Zephaniah is the great-grandson of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Hezekiah was a good king. So here's Zephaniah now, generations later, preaching the truth, preaching the gospel to the people of Judah. He is preaching in Judah. The northern kingdom has long since vanished at this point. So he's preaching to Judah, and he's preaching during the reign of a good king, King Josiah. He's from a good family. He's from Hezekiah's line, and he's preaching during the reign of a good king. But apparently things weren't as good as maybe they appeared on the surface. Because look at verse 2 of Zephaniah chapter 1. This is the Lord's this is the beginning of his prophecy. This is the way to begin. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now what an opening to his prophecy. What an opening to a book. And that's just a taste of what's to come in this small book. Now, if you look at the language here of the judgment that God is pronouncing through Zephaniah, look at the phrases that are used, okay? He will sweep away man and beast, birds of the heaven, fish of the sea, and then everything from the face of the earth. What does that remind you of? What are those phrases? Where does it take your mind to? To Genesis chapter 1. And even the order here is like the reverse of Genesis, And what's happening here, almost it's as if God is saying through Zephaniah, he's going to undo creation. He's going to uncreate the world and destroy it. So this sort of sets the tone for the first part of Zephaniah's prophecy. There's two major parts. And the first part is all about judgment. And Zephaniah borrows a lot of language from the other prophets that went before him. Yet Zephaniah speaks about God's white-hot fury against sin and against sinners in a way that's almost unparalleled in all of Scripture. Yet we'll also see at the end of this book that he speaks of the glory to come for redeemed sinners in a way that's almost unparalleled in all of Scripture. So one of the major things he talks about throughout this book is the day of the Lord. Now we're not going to camp out there too long on this phrase, day of the Lord. We did that when we studied Joel. And a lot of the language, it seems like Zephaniah even borrows from Joel... But this day of the Lord, remember, it can refer to not only something imminent for Israel or for Judah, some sort of judgment coming upon God's people. And it was always a time of, where God would judge his people and judge his enemies. But he would also redeem some of his people and he would pour out blessings upon his children. And that's what the day of the Lord always involved. And sometimes it was immediate things such as the Assyrians invading Israel. But other times the prophets speak of something far off to come. 
They speak of the day of the Lord in language that cannot be boiled down to just something like the invasion of an army into a nation. It involves the invading of God's army coming back to do exactly what Zephaniah talks about at the beginning here, sweeping mankind off the face of the earth. And so you remember I used the illustration of a mountain range. Old Testament prophecies like a mountain range. Some of the ranges are closer, some distant peaks. When you look at a prophecy like that, you see, okay, some of these things were fulfilled early on, but some of this points to things down the road. And sometimes there's double fulfillment in the Old Testament prophecies. So here is where I want us to get our first point. As we think about this massive, white-hot judgment that the Lord speaks through Zephaniah. The first thing I want us to see here from the book of Zephaniah is Zephaniah calls for us to look with fear at the comprehensive scope of God's judgment. Look with fear at the comprehensive scope of God's judgment. And I have another blank there and I'm leaving it blank for the moment right now and that's intentional. Right now I just want to think about the comprehensive scope of God's judgment. Zephaniah begins by showing us how universal God's judgment is against sin and sinners, but then he quickly shifts the focus and narrows in on the people of Judah. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. God's judgment would begin with his people. It always begins with his people. Zephaniah ministered during the reign of King Josiah, as I mentioned a minute ago. Josiah was king from 640 B.C. to 609 B.C., I had mentioned also the northern kingdom has long since fallen. And Josiah had brought much needed reform to the people of Judah. But even despite the reforms that Josiah had brought, apparently they were not, um, they didn't stay for very, they didn't have much staying power. Kind of reminds me as you go back in history and you look at the great awakenings in our nation. You see these great awakenings in the 1700s and yet the nation strays. And then you see this great awakening in the 1800s. And then the nation strays. And you've seen great awakenings in other places around the world. But these, these great awakenings, unfortunately because of the wickedness of men, seem to fade away as the next generations come. It happened with Israel, didn't it? As they crossed the Jordan, God warns Joshua in that generation, teach your children what God has done lest they fade away, lest they drift away. And then we read in Judges what happens when the generation of Joshua dies, the next generation didn't know about the works of God and they immediately begin to drift away. And so that's what's happening in Judah as well. Despite the reforms of Josiah, there is a a sickness of sin in Judah. Now what's specifically going on in Judah? Well, the prophet tells us in verses 4 through 12 of chapter 1. And we see in these passages three things. And it's very similar to the things we've seen in the other minor prophets. If you feel like the minor prophets are like a broken record, okay, I think that's intentional. To drive home the depravity of man and to drive home the mercy of God. But what we see here in Judah is, number one, that their worship was compromised. Number two, that their leaders were corrupt. And number three, that the people were complacent. Look at verse four. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. Now that tells me something. That tells me that some of Josiah's reforms had been successful. Because what's left in Judah is a remnant of Baal. But that's the problem. There's still a remnant of Baal. And God says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. And the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. So he's talking about the idolatrous priests, the priests of Baal. But he's also going to take care of the priests of God. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heaven. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom. In Judah there was massive syncretism going on. Syncretism is the merging together of false religious practices with the truth. 
Notice God is going to cut off this remnant of Baal. But the people added more than just Baal worship to their sinfulness. They had more variety in their idolatry, more variety in their unfaithfulness. It says that they were bowing down to the hosts of heaven, meaning they were practicing astrology, which was very prevalent in the nations around them. So they had exchanged the glory of the Creator and were worshiping created things. The text says that they were also worshiping Milcom, who was the god of the Assyrians. Perhaps they had seen the power of the Assyrians, how Assyria had wiped out Israel. Assyria had been the the most powerful empire in the world at that time, yet now there was this rising new power called Babylon. But at the time, Assyria was the most powerful nation. Perhaps the people of Israel said, well, look at Assyria. They're succeeding. Look how their borders are expanding. Well, let's worship their God. Or let's at least fold the worship of their God into the worship of our God so that we can kind of cover all our bases. That's what's going on here in Israel, they weren't simply idolaters. They were syncretists. Notice that their false worship was mixed in with the worship of Yahweh. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. God's people had been set apart by God to shine his light into the nations. But instead, they had become like the nations. The word goes on to describe these syncretists as those who have turned back from following the Lord. Who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Their worship was false. They were a people who were self-sufficient and apathetic. Self-sufficient and apathetic toward the Lord. Isn't the church, at least the visible church in America today, much like that? Apathetic? Sort of complacent? Sort of mixing in the things of the world with the things of God. So we can cover all our bases. Perhaps we're not as bold as some churches, like a church in New York that I'm aware of that when you walk in their worship center, there are literally stations along the walls where you can stop and worship other gods. That's a pretty bold syncretism. And perhaps the churches that we're familiar with don't have that type of syncretism, but we certainly figure out other ways to syncretize true religion with false religion. Maybe we mix the worship of the true God with our worship of relevancy. We want to be so relevant to the culture. We want the culture to love us so much. And so we'll, we'll, just, we'll just take a little bit of the world over here and mix it in, cover all our bases. That's the church in America today, not much different than Judah. It may seem contradictory to you that I said they were self-sufficient and apathetic on one hand, yet they were devoted to worshiping false gods on the other hand. So they're devoted to worshiping something, yet at the same time they're self-sufficient. You may say, well, that's, isn't that contradictory? Well, it's not really because each human heart is hardwired for worship, but each human heart is also totally depraved. So apathy toward God and self-sufficiency is actually on display when mankind creates gods in his own image. Gods he can control. Gods that, he, that will give him his freedom. Gods that will allow him to exercise his sin without any inhibitions. In light of this, the day of the Lord was coming upon the people of Judah. Verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. We've seen this call in the minor prophets before to be silent. Cover your mouth. Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. This is like in today's courts. Everyone's mingling around, talking, and then the judge gets ready to come in, and you hear the, the bailiff walks in and says, All rise! He wants your attention and you to get quiet because the judge is coming in to the courtroom. And that's the image here. Be silent before the Lord. It goes on and says, The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. 
So we have a scene here of God preparing a great sacrificial feast and inviting all the leaders of the land. But this is a very dark play on words for the prophet says that the leaders themselves are to be offered up in judgment. But not only was the worship compromised, the leaders were also corrupt. Verse 8. And on that day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. This reference to foreign attire is most likely a euphemism employed by the prophet to indicate the syncretism that had been brought into the land that was brought in by the leaders themselves. Verse 9, and on that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. Now this phrase, this phrase refers to the pagan religious practices of the Philistines who wouldn't step on the threshold of their temple. That was a superstitious practice they had. They wouldn't step on the threshold. Do you remember when that began? 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines capture the ark of the Lord. They take it in and they have a statue of their god Dagon. And in the morning they come in and Dagon's flat on his face before the ark. And then they come in again. This time Dagon's not only flat on his face, but his hands have been cut off. And I believe his feet were cut off too. And they're on the threshold. And from that day forward, the Philistine people wouldn't step on the threshold of their temple. So here are the people of God practicing the superstitions of the Philistines and ignoring their God who cut the hands and feet off of the Philistine God. And it says, it goes on, it says, and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. These leaders were indeed leading the way in syncretism and false worship, but they also were corrupt. Filling their master's house is a reference to the increase of wealth. And they did this by means of violence and fraud. I have a friend who's from Detroit, and I, I kind of connected with him on Facebook recently and sent him a message about what's going on in Detroit. And he said, you know what? The issue here isn't that there's not enough money. It's that it goes into the hands of corrupt leaders. And so the city is crumbling all around us. That's what's happening here. So God was judging the nation. Verse 10. And on that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. So we read, this is their economy. Their economy is going to be devastated by God's judgment. Verse 12, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. The word complacent here means they are thickening on the dregs. Perhaps you see that. If you have an ESV or even another translation, you probably see that little note at the bottom of your Bible there. So what are the dregs? The dregs are the stuff that's left over in the bottom of the cup. So when, when someone would have wine, there was stuff that was left over. There was sediment and stuff that would be remaining in the bottom of the cup. And the reason that got there was because the wine just sat there, unused. It just sat there. And that's the image here, this complacency of God's people. They don't want to serve God, but they're not necessarily going to go against God either. They're just going to sit there. And, and, and everything just sort of falls to the bottom. So it's all that's left is this nasty uh, sediment left over. These people were like the sludge at the bottom of a bad cup of coffee. I don't drink wine, so i got to use coffee. All right? They were like the sludge at the bottom of a bad cup of coffee. The nasty stuff. They had a view of God that said, he doesn't care. He doesn't really have any good in store for his people, but he really doesn't care. He's not necessarily going to worry himself about the bad stuff his people do. So I'm just going to live the way I want to live. 
It's not worth it to get all worked up about serving him and living a holy life and all that stuff. He's not going to do good to you for doing it. And he's not going to do bad to you if you choose to live with a little sin here or a little sin there. Sounds like the way a lot of so-called Christians live today. I'm just going to dabble in a little bit of sin. Just a little bit. The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. What a dangerous posture to take for the Lord judges such complacency. Verse 13, their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. This is the opposite of what we read from Isaiah earlier. You shall live in the houses you build. You shall drink the wine from the vineyards you plant. That's in the new heavens and the new earth. But what was coming upon people, men, because of their sin was that great judgment where all the things that they thought they loved or that they did love more than God were even going to be taken away from them. Their houses, their wine. And now Zephaniah, in terrifying language, reminiscent of Joel chapter 2, verse 2, reminds the readers that a great day of judgment is coming. Look at verse 14. Let's read 14 through 18. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So now we're back to a global event. A global event. God's judgment begins with Judah, but it spreads to the ends of the earth. So what are people to do in light of such comprehensive judgment? And friends, what are you to do here today? If you're not hidden in Christ, which we'll talk about later, you cannot stand when that day comes. You cannot. You'll be wiped away with everything else. So what are we to do in light of such comprehensive judgment? Well, we are to repent. Look with fear at the comprehensive scope of God's judgment and repent. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. This is a call for corporate repentance. Gather, church. As I said a few weeks ago, we don't do much corporate repenting. But we should. Gather together, O shameless nation. Verse 2. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like shaft, Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Now let me pause right there. Who is God calling to repent? Seek the Lord, you what? Humble of the land. Those whose hearts have already been softened by God are the ones who are being called to repent. Who leads the way in repentance? Yes, all the hard hearts in Judah needed to repent too. But here's the deal. Who leads the way? Who leads the way in repentance for a nation? It is the people of God whose hearts have already been humbled. Repent. 
the humble of the land. It goes on, it says, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Perhaps you may be hidden. Oh, there's great grace in that verse. Being hidden. Seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility is what the prophet is calling on. That's what repentance looks like. That's why I say faith and repentance goes together. Repentance is simply the other side of the coin that involves seeking God in faith and in belief. Those who seek refuge in the Lord by nature of that very act are turning and repenting from the world. This passage is reminiscent of 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. I get so sick of hearing people read this verse on July 4th. This is not about America. This is about the church. Seek the Lord, you humble of the land. It's about the church. If my people will humble themselves. Why is repentance necessary in today's text? Why? For without it, there's no hope to withstand God's judgment. Look at the connecting word here that connects the call to repent from chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, with verse 4 of chapter 2. Look at the connecting word. It's the word for. For. Because. So the prophet then in chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, enters into a lengthy section where he speaks of the judgment of God being poured out on all the surrounding nations. Then that's why he's telling you to repent. He's about to explain why. Because he's going to pour out judgment more than just on Judah. It's going to spread. If you look closely at this judgment that God speaks of in chapter 2, we're not going to be able to read every verse here, but if you look at verses 2, 4 through 7, you'll see that God is going to judge the Philistines. The Philistines were to the west. Of Judah, And then if you read verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2, you'll see that God is going to judge the Moabites and the Ammonites. The Moabites and the Ammonites were the wilderness people. They were to the east of Judah. Then he speaks of judgment to come against Cush in chapter 2, verse 12. And Cush usually refers either to the Egyptians or the Ethiopians, which were to Judah's south. Finally, in chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, he has a word of judgment against Assyria, which was to Judah's north. So what's the picture here? It's a picture that judgment begins centered on God's people. And then as it spreads to the whole earth, it spreads to the east and to the west and to the south and to the north. In all directions, there will be none who will not face the judgment of a righteous and holy God. There's no direction anyone can run to get away from the judgment of God. And we see specifically in these texts that God is judging these nations for their pride. But he calls on his people to be humble, to repent in humility. But the people were far from humble. Far from humble. Instead, they had spurned God's correction. It says in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Woe to her who is a rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. So Jerusalem and Judea and Judah were unwilling to come to the Lord. Spearheading their lack of repentance was Judah's leaders. Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. Her officials within her are roaring lions. So the officials, but also her judges. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing to the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. 
Verse 6. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. The people would not turn to God. Verse 8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for the fire of my jealousy, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Again, it begins with Judah, and it spreads out to all the earth. Do you see this repeated theme in Zephaniah? This global judgment, it begins with God's people, And it extends. Now thematically, it would make sense that the book ended right there. Because, I mean, it ends with all the earth being consumed. Right? And it began with all the earth being consumed. So thematically, you say, okay, boy, he has really brought this book back to the front. It's done a full circle now. Good job, Zephaniah. Way to write good literature. But it doesn't end there. Praise be to God that it doesn't end there. There have been hints of hope. All throughout this first section anyway, there was that mention I said earlier about perhaps you can be hidden in the Lord. That's saying that it's a possibility. I mean, that, that's grace. The prophet doesn't say, oh well. He says, perhaps, perhaps you can be hidden. There's hope. But there's other hints as well. Chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 9. They both speak of a remnant of God's people who will possess the lands after God's judgment has passed. These are those who did, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, those who sought the Lord, who sought righteousness, who sought humility. And then there's a glorious shift in this book. From this point forward, there's a glorious shift. So the book's not only a book that calls um, for us to look with fear at the comprehensive scope of God's judgment and repent. Zephaniah also calls for us to look with faith at the comprehensive scope of God's salvation. Look with faith at the comprehensive scope of God's salvation. Verse 9. All of a sudden, it's just like just a shift in the book. Verse 9. For at that time, at the same time he's going to bring judgment, at that time I will change the speech of the peoples. Now this word in Hebrew, peoples, is a word used for Gentile peoples. So already we see the comprehensive scope of God's salvation. Just as chapter 1, verse 1 began with all the nations... So too, this word of mercy and grace and salvation begins with the nations. Notice that God says he will change the speech of his people. The transformation is a work of God. This is a transforming work of God's mercy. God is the initiator of every single bit of our salvation, including our repentance. When it comes to our salvation, God is not a reactive God. He is an initiator. It says, for at that time I will change the speech of my peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. This is a work of God's transforming grace in sinners from being self-reliant people of perverse speech who call upon their own strength to save themselves to a people of faith who call upon the name of the Lord alone. 
A salvation that changes us from apathetic rebels to a worshiping people, worshiping servants of the one true God. The verse continues, verse 9, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. What a, what a beautiful picture of God's people coming even from the rebellious nations around Judah. A salvation that does away with the disgrace of our sinful rebellion. Zephaniah 3.11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. This does not say that the people who are saved are not rebels. Oh, there was a good set of people in the land that didn't rebel. No, God saves rebels. The church isn't filled with people that figured out how to live right for God. The church is filled with rebels that have been redeemed. And that's what's happening here. A salvation where God works to purify his people, removing those who were not truly his children of faith. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. There's no room for prideful people in the people of God. Because if you comprehend the fact that God's doing all this, You don't have an ounce of room to be proud about. Nothing. You are a humble and lowly people. So you go back to 2, verses 1 to 3, and you see this call for humility. It's a call for humility based upon what God has done, his mercy that's upon us. A salvation where all God's people will be people of faith, people of justice, people of the truth. Continuing in verse 12, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Hold on to that phrase right there. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. A salvation where God's people will rest in him, friends. His people, the sheep of his pasture, he shall be their shepherd forever, the shepherd of their souls. Verse 13 continues, for they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. How beautiful this picture of what God is doing for his people. Friends, This is not a salvation that man can earn or that man can make happen. This is a supernatural work of God. This is describing a new people that have been made new. They've been transformed by God's grace. They are new creatures in Christ. This is about the new covenant where God does the work inside his people to make them faithful, to make them covenant keepers. Jeremiah 32, 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Who's going to do it? God's going to do it. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land of in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. This is a new covenant reality that's being seen here in Zephaniah chapter 3. A work that God is doing to not only bring people into his covenant, but also to be the covenant keeper because he's doing a work inside of them. It's glorious, Ezekiel 36, 26. Oh, I read this one all the time because I love it. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It does not say I will, you know, make it easier for you. I will cause you, friends, true believers are becoming holy because God is at work and God doesn't mess up. He does what he says he's going to do. He causes us to become holy he's doing it we can take no credit but he is making his children holy those who are not on a path of holiness have no right to claim that they are part of the people of God 
No rights. Scriptures are clear about this. Crystal clear. We must see that this is more than a prophecy about a future return from exile. This is a prophecy about the church, about the new covenant people of God, all of whom are filled with the Spirit. The new covenant people of God also includes the Gentiles, people of all nations. The comprehensive scope of God's grace is such that it includes all nations. Therefore, this is a prophecy about the true children of Abraham, children not of ethnic descent, but children of faith, Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This prophecy was all about what was to come, what is to come. For those who are of faith, those who believe in the gospel message of Jesus Christ and are thereby united to him, hidden in him, and they are therefore grafted into the true Israel of God, and they thereby can partake of the promises of God that he makes for his people in Zephaniah chapter 3. Surely this was a great mystery to Zephaniah and even for the people of Judah, but it was made clear in Jesus. Ephesians 3, 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I'll tell you what, this Gentile's happy. I'm so thankful. Who is it that will experience this amazing salvation of God? It's the people of faith. Those who, remember verse 12, take refuge in the name of the Lord. What do you do when you take refuge? You, take, you come under, you come under the protection of, the wrath is coming and you need to be under something. And those who take refuge in the name of the Lord are the woes who are going to be saved. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. That name is Jesus. Zephaniah is all about Jesus. For the people Reading this, they knew from their own sinful past and from the sins of their fathers that they could never be a faithful covenant people. They would always fail. They had over and over again. That's why I said the prophets are like a broken record. Sin would always have the upper hand. The depravity of man is on full display in the history of Israel, in the history of Judah, and in the futility of man's attempts to try to be righteous before God. How could these promises possibly be true that Zephaniah is speaking of here? These glorious restoration promises. Those who heard and read these promises that Zephaniah wrote. Those who read and heard Zephaniah had to humble themselves in faith. Seeking refuge in the Lord. Looking forward in faith for him to provide their salvation. And we who read and hear Zephaniah, we too have to humble ourselves in faith. And seek refuge in the Lord. And look back in faith believing that God has indeed provided our salvation. And he did it himself. In Jesus, on the cross. So how should we react? We look with fear at the comprehensive scope of God's judgment and we repent. So we look with faith at the comprehensive scope of God's salvation and we do what? We rejoice. We rejoice. Zephaniah three fourteen. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Rejoice, friends. Rejoice. Why? Because you're no longer under condemnation. Verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. 
There is now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have taken refuge in him. No longer are we under the judgment of God. That's amazing. For those of faith in Jesus, a mighty transforming transaction has occurred and we should rejoice. Christ took the comprehensive judgment of God against sin on our behalf. God's wrath was poured out on him on the cross. More than that, the very righteousness, the good and perfect life of Jesus was credited to us. Debt of sin removed, credit of righteousness given. So we rejoice, we sing aloud, we shout. But there's more. Rejoice for our God is with us. Continuing in verse 15. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Oh, friends, what glory it is that, that the Trinity has been at work on behalf of the children of God. The Father sent the Son, and the Son sends the Spirit to indwell all those who are His. We are folded into the very love of God. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers, and thus God is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. And He is working a mighty work in us to make us like the Son. He is at work in us, making us like the Son. And if that's not reason to rejoice, listen to these astonishing words that follow. The rest of verse 17. He, referring to God, will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What? God will rejoice over me with gladness? He'll quiet me with his love? He'll exult over me with loud singing? These are amazing verses. They'd be idolatrous if they weren't coming from God's lips. Let's strike any image from our mind of God being a reluctant father who begrudgingly admits us into his kingdom. Don't view God as a father with an annoyed look on his face as we barely squeak into heaven. It's not like Jesus found a loophole in the law or orchestrated some sort of special plea bargain on our behalf. And and that God is a judge that now has his hands tied and he has to reluctantly let in these sinners. That's a false God of our own making. No, our God orchestrated our salvation. He put forth the Son in the courtroom of heaven. He put forth the Son to be the propitiation for our sin. He did it. And He, God the Father, rejoices over those who are saved. Jesus says such, doesn't He? Luke chapter 15. You know the passage of the lost sheep. Look what it says in Luke chapter 15, verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. My friends, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And then it goes on. So first there's the lost sheep. What's the next thing that's lost in that parable? The lost what? Come on. Be Bible readers. The lost coin. The lost coin. So when the woman finds the coin, she rejoices. And it says this in Luke chapter 15, verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. My friends, we misquote this verse all the time. We say, oh, when someone comes to faith in Christ, they say, oh, the angels in heaven are celebrating. I'm sure they are, but that's not what this verse says. This says there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The angels are the witnesses of the joy. It's the Father who's going crazy when sinners come to repentance. He's the one rejoicing. Over us. 
It's amazing. And just to leave no doubt as to how God reacts when sinners are saved, what story follows this one? Yeah, the lost sheep, the lost coin. Come on. The prodigal son. And how did the father react? He ran to the son. He put his robe on him, put a ring on him. He killed the fattened calf and he had a party. That's the joy the father has over us. Isaiah 62, 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He is exulting over us with loud singing. Can you imagine what it's like to hear God sing? Can you imagine? It must be the most beautiful sound in the world. Oh, the joy. I can only imagine. I can't wait to hear that song. I'm only speculating here. But I can imagine that the new creation coming forth out of God's mouth like a song. Like Aslan in the magician's nephew who sang Narnia into existence. As God brings the new heavens and the new earth. And I can only imagine him singing over his children as he recreates the world. As he restores everything. But you may be wondering... But does this, God, does this make God an idolater? I mean, he's rejoicing over us, singing over us. Doesn't God delight in his name being proclaimed above all other things? Can he delight in us this way and still be the God we worship? I think the answer to that question is provided for us back in verse 12 again of chapter 3. It's true that God delights in his name. He delights in his name above all other things. But where are we told to take refuge? In his name. In the name of the Lord. So what happens? Here's what happens. To those of faith, we come to God alone for salvation through Jesus, the name by which all men must be saved, and we are thereby united to Christ. We find our refuge in him. The New Testament over and over and over again speaks of us being united to him and being in him. He is our refuge from judgment and our hope for righteousness. Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we are in Christ and therefore God is rejoicing over us. He is also rejoicing over himself. For by doing so, he is exalting the Son. As he rejoices over us, he is exalting his own name and rejoicing over the Son. He exalts over us because and only because we are joined to the Son. And we're hidden in the holy and exalted Son. This is a text about us gloriously being folded into the joy of the Godhead. The love and joy that God has over the Son and the Spirit. And the Son has for the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit has for the Father and the Son. That joy that they sing over one another. And we are folded into that because we're united to Christ. It's absolutely mind-blowing. I can't, I can't put it into words. It's stunning. It's a mighty work of God. It's a mighty work of God's comprehensive salvation. If you seek your own glory among men, truly you have your reward on earth. If you exalt your own name among men, truly you have your reward on the earth. If you bank on your own righteousness, truly you have your reward on the earth. But if you humble yourselves and seek the glory of God above all other things, and if you hide yourself, hide your name in the name of God and clothe yourself with the righteousness of his son, then your heavenly father who loves his name above all things will reward you beyond all imaginings and exult over you with loud singing. And just to Leave no doubt in our mind 
that this is a work of God, Zephaniah finishes his book out here. I want you to listen to the I wills here. Verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in and at that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will look with faith at the comprehensive scope of God's salvation, friends, and rejoice. So how about you, friend, this morning? At the end of those disaster movies, there's usually a band left of some bruised and beaten heroes some humans remaining trying to sort through the rubble and get earth going again. That's not what God has in store for us. That's not what God has in store for those who have hid themselves in Christ and thereby withstand the, his righteous wrath. No, he has in store a more glorious ending than even the most creative of the Hollywood writers could ever think of. A more glorious ending than any of the most talented Hollywood special effects experts could muster up. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. My question for you, will you be there on that day? Will you be there on that day? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you and we just acknowledge, Lord, your great love for us. Well, in a church like ours, sometimes we can, we can focus a lot on, on your glory as we should and, and on you making much of your own name, which we should, which is absolutely what the scriptures teach. But sometimes, Lord, I think we can let it slip away how much you truly love your children. We can forget verses that teach us that you're exulting over us. Oh, but God, if there be any here that are self-sufficient and prideful, they will get their reward. It'll be the praise of men. And then they will face the judgment. So God, if there be any in this room who are trusting in themselves for their own righteousness, for their own salvation, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in them and crush that idol and give them a new heart. A heart that turns from sin, repents, and at the exact same time, believes. Lord, I pray that you give that to them this morning. Because apart from you, we're hopeless, helpless. So Lord, I pray that anybody be in here within the earshot of these words, that the gospel words that have been preached this morning, Lord, if I've preached them correctly, Lord, that gospel words that have been preached this morning would penetrate hearts because it's by your word that you speak new life into hearts. So Lord, I pray that you speak new life into hard hearts that are in this room this morning. And Lord, if you see fit to use... The, this message and the continuing preaching of your word here at Harbin's to speak new life into the hearts of the community. I pray, Lord, you do it. And give us the boldness to go out and say these things to people outside these walls. So God, we thank you this morning for your love for us. We want to glory in who you are. And I beg, Lord, this morning, if there be any in here who have never taken refuge in your name, that they would come to Jesus. Come to Jesus this morning. It's only when we come to Jesus in faith that we find our refuge and we find that we're hidden in him. So I pray all this in the precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.